I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head to head to see which one does it better on this week's episode. In the red corner, what happens when you assemble some of the funniest people of the moment for your golf comedy? Then decide that what you can make up on the day is probably way better than the words that you put in that pesky little thing called a script. Also, why not throw in a fair few narcotics to the mix, along with an animatronic gopher, and wham, you've got a cult comedy that seems to increase its reputation with age. But is it really that good? From 1980, it's Caddyshack. Welcome to the Bushwood Country Club. The membership's exclusive. You think I'd join this crummy snobatorium? The help is outrageous. The madness is contagious. Bad language, fooling around on the course, poor caddying. What is whole place? Caddy Shack. While in the blue corner. Remember when an Adam Sandler man-child comedy was something to get excited about? I mean, really excited. Long before the wheels came off the Happy Madison combination of sugar-coated schmaltz, surreal slapstick and general silliness, Sandler turned in a couple of doozies. And this is one of the best of the bunch. We're revisiting the golden era of Sandler as we slap on a smile and spend some time with 1996's Happy Gilmore. For 400 years, golf has been a gentleman's game. A game of tradition, etiquette, and above all, sportsmanship. Until now. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hey, Clash Potters, when we're finished with this week's episode, why don't you swing by the Yacht Club? Hello, I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. 
Oh, you're cracking up already. <laughs> I can't believe it. Of all the impressions, I wasn't expecting Ted Knight this early. <laughs> oh. if, if you revisit a previous episode where Bill Murray's Carl got a mention, we both know that I cannot do that guy. So it's going to be Ted Knight all the way. So welcome everyone to this week's gargantuan golfing grapple as Caddyshack faces off against Happy Gilmore. These were Christopher Tilly, a.k.a. Christopher Thrilly's choices this week. Tell us about your thinking, Chris. Um, Basically, I picked these two films because I know how much you two like golf. (laughs) Um, that was in the forefront of my thinking uh but also i kind of grew up on caddyshack it it's it may be the film i've watched the most in my life it's kind of between that and back to the future for for a variety of weird reasons um but also it's its 40th birthday uh this week it came out on july the 25th 1980 so i thought we should mark its birthday with a, a bit of a chat Okay, well, the clues you gave us for Victoria and I and indeed our dear Clash Putters to guess what the films were. You started on the shows last week with Swinging in the Rain and then you followed that up with one on Twitter. If you do not follow us on Twitter, please join the party. We're at Clash Pod on Twitter. There's loads of extras about each show we record on there. And that clue that you gave was, I, I think I prefer it, all the fun of the fair way very nice chris it's very nice so uh we got a lot of right answers this week uh possibly because there's not a lot of golf movies we'd probably talk about i think there was one serious mention of the will smith matt damon movie the legend of bagger vance and there was a few for kevin costner's tin cup but nearly everyone guessed correctly happy gilmore versus caddyshack too many to read out, so I'm just going to announce who got it first. And our champion this week, it's a dead heat. Paul Logue and Mike Willis both have their tweets that read 11.48 a.m. So whoever got in first, we just don't know. Congratulations to both of you. All right then, Christopher, over to you. These are your movies. Yeah, so uh, did you notice any connections beyond the obvious, uh, that being golf? Um, it's not a connection, but it's more of a, a rumination. When I first met you, Chris, I thought to myself, if this goes any further, there's the kind of guy that's going to make me listen to a golf podcast. And I was right, <laughs> because it, which I never thought I would do. But in order to do a bit of research for this, I had to listen to some golf podcasts. And that's what? my fault. I'm sorry, I didn't what? listen to a golf podcast. I've never done that. Why are you listening to a golf podcast? <laughs> what? What is happening? <laughs> what golf <laughs> podcast did you listen to? I'm so intrigued. Um, do you really want to know I've forgotten the title I'll have to send it you it's a man who plays golf and he was talking to Dennis Dugan about Happy Gilmore so I was like I better listen to it see what's going on Uh, there yeah okay Okay, there's a connection there, because if you were going to spend the next hour coming at Caddyshack from a golfing angle we might have a problem (laughs) no I'm not doing that well it's good we're expanding Um, our horizons Alex did you spot any uh, additional connections no, not really. The only one I've got is it's two of the greatest villains in cinema history in Ted Knight's Judge Smales and Christopher McDonald's Shooter McGavin. And then based on that observation, 
It's villains who get their comeuppance by being chased across a golf course by very large men. So that is how both their endings are met. Large men chasing them at speed across a golf course. Beyond that... No. Uh, the only the only other thing I noticed watching them back to back is that they both the finale both revolves around um bets, big climactic bets in both movies. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um so I've got before we get into them, um I do have a little intro from someone I spoke to the other day. So apologies for the sound quality. I did do this over Zoom and the chat was sitting outside. So it wasn't the ideal circumstances, but anyway, um have a listen to this. Hey, this is Michael O'Keefe. I'm the guy that played Danny Noonan and Caddyshack, and this is Clash of the Titles. <laughs> hey! Oh my God, that's amazing! Oh wow! I was so, just watching him in the movie Caddyshack. <laughs> yeah, so I reached out to Michael on Twitter, uh, told him what we were up to, and he was up for having a chat. I've also done a longer interview uh, with him. I'm going to be printing somewhere else, but I got him to do the bits for the end of the show so he will be he will, <laughs> oh, wow. be he will be chiming in later on with his favorite scene in mbw and thing he would change wow well if the bits wasn't an attractive enough climax to every episode of clash of the titles already it certainly is for this episode well done chris well done i, I just i want to give you I want, i'm giving you a virtual hug how, how does that feel good but judge me when you've heard his bits if you don't like his bits this might have all been a complete waste of time <laughs> right, good point. Yep, good point. Put the negative spin on it. Love it. Um, all right. Well, you gave myself Caddyshack, and you gave Victoria Happy Gilmore. So, because we do it chronologically, shall I begin? Do it. Okay. Here we go. Normally, this is the part of the show where I would provide you with a synopsis of the film Caddyshack, but I'm not going to do that this week because there isn't one. There was one. Harold Ramis, Doug Kenny and brother of Bill, Brian Doyle Murray, had planned to make a coming-of-age comedy about the caddies at a fancy country club centred around the man we just heard, Michael O'Keefe's Danny. However, upon hiring three of the funniest people working at that time in Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield and, of course, Bill Murray, it was decided to put loads more of them in and jettison the caddy story. Hence, we get this ramshackle collection of sketches that was pretty much only saved in the edits thanks to the real star of the film, an animatronic gopher whose tale of survival is the beating heart of this movie. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, a caddy shack. Starring Chevy Chase as Ty Webb. Who is that disgusting man over there? A sportsman who really knows how to score. So what brings you to this uh, nape of the woods? Neck of the wave. How come you're here? Rodney Dangerfield as Al Servant. A big shot. My dinghy's bigger than your whole boat! With an even bigger mouth. <laughs> hey, somebody step on a duck. <laughs> Ed Knight as Judge Smales. A man of dignity. <laughs> and a sense of fair play. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Michael O'Keefe as Danny Noonan. A caddy who wants an education and gets one. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Cindy Morgan as Lacey Underall. She's got a bad reputation, and she's working hard to keep it. You want to tie me up with some of your ties? Huh? And Bill Murray 
as Carl Spackler. Uh, just a harmless squirrel, not a plastic explosive or anything, nothing to be worried about. He's not crazy about gophers, <coughs> but he is crazy. License to kill gophers by the government of the United Nations. And introducing Mr. Gopher as himself. I said freeze, Gopher! So, that's my, uh, that's me setting out my stall a little bit, but uh, as I've been told, uh, both on and off air by Chris, very little opinions at this stage in the show. <laughs> Save them, Alex. Keep those opinions locked down. So instead, let's talk about our history um, with the film. Uh, Chris, you've already mentioned this. You go first. Yeah, I talked about it previously on the podcast that I watched this as a young child um, with my parents many times and with my brother over and over again. I think probably because we liked Bill Murray and Chevy Chase because of Ghostbusters and the vacation movies and my dad liked golf. So this is something we all sat down together and laughed at and enjoyed. And then, uh, as I've said before, at the end of the film, I did turn to my dad when I was seven and ask him what we're all going to get laid means. (laughs) (laughs) i forgot about that (laughs) uh to to jog your memories my dad uh it was a nervous pause and he says it means they're all gonna have fun so it's just true it's true he did he did his best it's supposed Um, to be true yeah (laughs) so i watched this a lot when i was a kid and also because of the 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 um gopher as well it's super funny and super cute when you're a kid he's like the funniest character in the film um and then uh when i when at the year i left school weirdly in 1996 i did watch this a lot between euro 96 football matches me and my mate paddy watched this a lot while smoking cigars which does not reflect (laughs) well on us but it was just something that we did in the summer of 1996 (laughs) sorry Uh, any any uh any other teenage boy would probably have a joint uh, yeah. in their hand to watch Caddy Shack. You got a cigar. That's. I mean, I think if there ever was a sentence on this podcast that really epitomised you, the person, Chris Tilly, it was that just then. I and think I wish, we may have peaked. <laughs> I wish I could change who I am, but I can't. That's who I was when I turned eighteen. <laughs> Um, so i watched this i would say in the first 20 years of my life i watched this film a lot i haven't watched it uh i've watched it once or twice since so that is my history okay victoria how about you uh, you, uh, did, did you <laughs> did, did you relax with a, a Cuban and a Caddyshack? <laughs> um, this is the first time I've seen this film. Excellent. Ta-da! Excellent. Yeah, can you wow. believe it? Um, but to give you another surprise, I am from a golfing family. So, <gasps> what? Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, you... What is happening this week? <laughs> I know, I never told you this. My dad was really into golf. We were like working class golfers. <laughs> Um, so I don't, I mean, yeah, I I don't remember much about it, but, and I've played golf because I went to, he would teach me how to do it, but only when women or girls were allowed on the golf course because they weren't allowed there every day because king golfers, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I've got a golf history. Wow. So, I, I mean... Because obviously Caddyshack is is a lot about class as as well as golf. Uh, was yeah. it more like a, a documentary to you? <laughs> it was just if you, I, I like I can't yeah. If you've never done it, I can't explain it. But my my dad really wanted to 
to ascend the ranks of society. <laughs> so he thought golf was the way he did it because he used to do clay pigeon shooting and then obviously <laughs> you weren't allowed to do that anymore. So he got rid of his gun, but he only ever had a gun because he thought that that's what posh people did. So when he had to get rid of his gun, he traded it in for golf clubs. And he's like, well, this is how we'll get on in life. He was such a like... What's the right word? He was always trying to get me. He's like, I know someone who can get you into Oxford, kid. And it's like, Dad, I could just do it myself. He's like, no, no, no. You need to know a guy. And I was like, you don't. You need to pass your A levels. But he wouldn't have it. So he wanted to do like networking on the golf course, which is pr- primarily why he was there. And he was shit yeah, at golf. Okay. My dad conducted a hell of a lot of business on the golf course uh, and did up yeah. until recently. Uh, but I, 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 you're absolutely right what you say about the uh, the class thing. I mean, it's so true. I remember when we were kids, my, my brother was the golfer out of, out of the two of us and he won a competition when he was about 10 and so we went down to the golf club to watch him get given his prize and my mum wasn't allowed in the room where he was given the prize because there were no women allowed and she lost her shit my mum went shit on it and and I don't think she went back to that place for about a decade so um yeah it's a very real it's a very real thing the uh the the tagline um for Caddyshack was slobs v snobs and it's it's a very real thing yeah well, uh, allow me to be the voice of the every person listening right now. I have absolutely oh, on, no tell relationship. You, tell me you've spoken to Pipe while um, watching it in your team. <laughs> uh, I have been. I have been clay pigeon shooting. I, why? I don't think it was banned, was it? Why was? Why was your dad told he wasn't allowed to do it anymore? Oh no, you weren't. Al- he didn't want to keep a gun after Dunblane. He didn't like the thought of it, oh. so he got rid of it. I mean, you weren't okay, allowed, were okay. you? I can't remember, but he was like, "No, that's that's enough of that." <laughs> so. Okay, yeah, mm. and so it's what's nice is we've got a real spread on this week's show. A first time viewing for Vicky, uh, mm. a, a firm favourite for Chris, and I've seen it twice. Um, I watched it once when I was a kid, like maybe uh, eleven or twelve, maybe even a bit younger, because the only two bits I could remember from my previous viewing when I turned it on this week were the Baby Ruth chocolate bar, obviously in the swimming pool, <laughs> that iconic piece of cinema. And the other bit, for some reason, is when Chevy Chase blows steam out of all his facial orifices when he sees Cindy Morgan at the party. I don't know why <laughs> I remembered that. I think basically because he's like a human cartoon character. And also, yeah. I didn't know how he did it. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, it was um, it was fun re-watching it. Um, really fun re-watching it. Let's do a little bit of the backstory. Um, uh, interject at any point, uh, because I'd love to get your thoughts. But the bottom line is uh, Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny had hit the big time with Animal House, which they'd written together. They turned a $3 million budget comedy into a $140 million mega smash, which at the time made it one of the most successful comedies in the history of cinema So you make that, you're like, great, I'm going to go back to the studio with my next project that I want to make. Um, These are interesting projects that they wanted to follow up Animal House with. Uh, Doug Kenny wanted to make a movie set in the Himalayas about Buddhists in Tibet fighting the Chinese army. Uh, Ramis wanted to make a revisionist Marxist Western or a very dark comedy about the American Nazi Party in Illinois. Now, I cannot find any way to connect the dots here from my research, of which there was much, but I just wonder how that bled into 
Blues Brothers because the Blues Brothers obviously has the the famous Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis line in it. And it came out the same year as Caddyshack. So I don't know whether either of you found out any connection there, but it's just a bit weird, isn't it? I guess all these people were friends. I guess that's the key in that this film came out of the combined efforts of National Lampoon, Second City, which is where a lot of the great improvisers of of comedy in the 80s came from, and Saturday Night Live. So I think they were all one big group of friends that were in competition with each other, but hanging out with each other and doing a lot of drugs with each Mm. other. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. Um, So uh, revisionist Marxist Western, Himalayas and... Uh, Illinois Nazis uh, were all met with a thumbs down from the studio, uh, although they did green light uh, the idea that they were next presented, which was Animal House on a Golf Course. <laughs> yeah, that's the so, thing. You can imagine the meeting. They're like, Marxist Western, no. And you just see your career just vanishing in front of you. And you're like, fuck it. Oh, Animal House on a Golf Course. So goes, yes. All right. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they wrote it with Brian Doyle Murray, um, who is, I think, one of five of Bill Murray's brothers. Uh, He'd spent a lot of his childhood as a caddy, so they all brainstormed this movie idea, came up with a screenplay, and I know you're a fan of a tight script, Victoria. Uh, So uh, remembering this is for a comedy, uh, (laughs) the script was, depending on where you read about it, between a short 199 pages (laughs) and the slightly meatier 250 pages long. Just think Um, about that for a second, because this is before (laughs) computers, right? So someone typed that shit up 250 pages with tipex all over it fucking us what else ridiculous amount of effort just um talking uh, about the murray brothers though um they are it's it, the autobiographical elements I, I read um cinderella man my life in golf by bill murray and he talks about the fact that that by the time he reached their local golf club indian hill country club in illinois his his brother was the pro and had won a caddy scholarship um, his other brother was the shoe guy. Lou, the caddy master who worked there, who he called the Prince of Polyester, would bet on anything. <laughs> Their dad was the VP of a lumber company. So literally all these little elements in this film came from um, the Murray's lives. And they, there were nine kids in their house as well. So that big family you see at the start of the movie, this, is, this was very autobiographical for the Murray's. And then also, um, as you said, Doug Canny, who was the driving force of this, his dad was a tennis coach. And so it was sort of both their stories sort of mushed together. Yeah, uh, on a much simpler level, um, I do remember watching it as a kid and thinking that Bill Murray was playing two roles in this movie because obviously his brother plays Lou, the caddy manager. And I, I used to think that was, I was like, oh, it's amazing. No wonder he's doing the crazy lip thing as Carl because he, he wants to look different <laughs> from his other role in this film. Um So obviously presented with this script, the studio went, hey, here's an idea. Cut the thing down. Yeah, Uh, which they did. And they were also told to find some stars, which is when they assembled uh, this holy trinity of talent in Rodney Dangerfield, who this was his first movie. He'd been a huge hit as a stand up on the chat show circuit in America. And you've got Bill Murray coming on board. He was still doing Saturday Night Live at the time, meant to be just a cameo. But obviously it's Bill Murray and you want to get as much of him in your movie as possible. So his part was built up. And then Chevy Chase, who was the biggest star of the three at that point, came on board. And it's kind of around this time that the story about Michael O'Keefe's caddy, Danny, 
who it was going to be a coming of age story about this guy uh, took a back seat to just watching these three do their stuff for fun, which I watched it. And I think that was a really, really good idea because the caddy stuff is not good. And the three of them <laughs> are brilliant. Those are my thoughts. Um, I think the, yeah, I agree with you. It's a good idea. But I do think um, Danny's story, it's really, no, it's really lucky that it worked out the way it did because Danny, Michael O'Keefe does a really good job of playing a boy like on the threshold of like being an adult and like a lot of adult things happen to him, but being a silly kid as well. And it is nice mm. to spend time with him in that story. Plus how amazing to have all these other foils, which is like this insane comedy going on. So you've just got a really good blend. It's just, it's good that it worked out like that. Yeah, I see what you mean. I, he, I mean, I think there, there was talk about Mickey Rourke playing that role, but for exactly the reason that you just said, they didn't think Mickey Rourke could play the innocent boy next door that Michael O'Keefe certainly could have. Michael O'Keefe had had a not Oscar nomination by this point. Um, so, yeah, I get that. I think the problem is that the through line for his story is spread at such large <laughs> intervals <laughs> throughout the film that you've kind of forgotten what the hell he's doing. And by yeah. the time, by the time there's the pregnancy scare, I was like, I was... What is what? Sorry, what's going on here? But we'll get into that when we get into the movie. Um, uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about the movie now, or do you want to talk about drugs? <laughs> you always say that. <laughs> Give it a rest. <laughs> hey, guys, got to make a living in these times. Um, so. I I wonder if you've read this book, Chris, because uh, you you're a reader. We all know that. Um, Chris Nashawati's book, Caddyshack: The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. I have read excerpts, but I haven't read the whole thing. Have you? No, but I did listen to a a, a kind of golf podcast. Actually, I've just realised. Sorry, Vicky, I have listened to a golf podcast. <laughs> uh, I accept your apology. <laughs> where uh, they interviewed him about the book. And I was sitting there stewing, annoyed that I hadn't actually written that book. So <laughs> generally quite angry. It really does sound like a, a warts and all book. Uh, there's quotes like from Michael O'Keefe saying cocaine was driving everyone. It would be lunch. And someone would say, do you want a line? And like, yeah, sure. It was no big deal. It was the 70s. And truth be told, the amount of cocaine in the late 70s and early 80s on the comedy circuit, especially in America, was astonishing. Yeah, he said uh, when I spoke to O'Keefe about it, he said that, you know, I watched the preview. They've done two documentaries about Caddyshack and he's he's a bit more diplomatic. But he said that now both O'Keefe and sorry, now both Kenny and Ramis are dead. He said he can sort of be a bit more honest about it. And he said literally Kenny and Ramis would come to his trailer at lunchtime trying to get him to do coke. And that's on the film that they're trying to make, which it doesn't actually make any sense. But no, um, yeah, it's pretty extreme. He said the 11 weeks, uh, it was like a permanent party. Instead of responsible producers making sure everyone played by the rules, Kenny led the charge uh, of much of the cast and the crew's rampant drug use. Apparently, he used to run down the motel hallway shouting, the eagle has landed, the eagle has landed. <laughs> Get your per diems in cash. The dealer's here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, 
Chevy Chase described that cocaine would just materialize on set. Uh, and apparently this uh, did annoy uh, Ted Knight, who would always go to bed early, showed up for the call time early, and didn't appreciate the looser, more improvisational approach to the film. So uh, apparently the parties did have to uh, get cut down in scale. I don't know whether they were or not uh, after... Uh, the Blues Brothers, uh, John Belushi, uh, the famous uh, cocaine user, John Belushi, the famous actor, John Belushi, uh, his binges on the set of the Blues Brothers uh, started to affect the film's budget. So <laughs> they had to cut down on the partying on Castaway. Um, and just as an aside, while I was uh, digging around, Victoria, um, uh, did you did you know that uh, John Belushi was who the role of Peter Venkman uh, in your favourite movie ever was written for? I did know that. Yeah, I did. I know I a lot about know Ghostbusters. That. Yeah. Um, I, I, should have, I should have imagined you did, uh, but I did not. <laughs> no, no, it's fair enough. I don't know a lot about trivia, if I'm honest. I can tell you about a first act turning point all day, but, you know. <laughs> um, right then, shall we go through this movie? Yeah, we can, but can you call it Caddyshack this time and not Castaway? Because you did just call it Castaway, which was weird. Did I call it Castaway? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've always got Castaway on the mind. I'm a big fan of Castaway. You know that. So uh, apologies. A lot of drugs that on ha- that set. Yeah, you know what that one was like. <laughs> yeah, wild. You cut, you cut How'd open you get Wilson. That thin? He, he bleeds white powder. <laughs> um, all right then. Caddyshack. Uh, so um, we uh, are at Bushwood Country Club. Cannot decide if that is a joke or not. Still unsure. <laughs> I think it is. It, it, I think it is too. Because I'm, all I'm the like, names in it? this film, all the names in this film are so stupid that that's got to be on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, we meet, first of all, uh, the first of our holy trinity, uh, Chevy Chase, um, who is playing golf uh, with Danny. Uh, and he's just great. You see, I didn't really have a reference point for Chevy Chase outside of the vacation movies. I think the first movie I saw Chevy Chase in was A Christmas Vacation. So I kind of came to him late. I don't remember this period of Chase, uh, but he's great. Where it just like, he can do so much with the simplest lie where he's like, I like you, Betty. Danny, <laughs> Danny. <laughs> it's just it's such a lovely little, yeah. lovely little line. I was worried about this film because I know it's the legend of it, and, but, and I know it's a massive gap in my knowledge. So, and it starts, it's like, what if I just, what if I don't find it funny and I just can't get into it? And the minute Chevy Chase starts talking, it's fucking hilarious. Like, he's, <laughs> he's just so calm and like attractive, which is a period, mm. like you say, that I missed. He was just always really, really goofy and older and all of that. Um, when Danny says to him, I've got to go to college, he's like, hey, it's not Russia. Just really chill. Mm. It's like, that's, yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm all in. This is fucking yeah. brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Do you take drugs? I do. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the way he says it. It's like, good, good. <laughs> I loved it. Um, uh, then uh, very soon after that, uh, we're introduced uh, to a-, a man who for many people is the star of this film, uh, Bill Murray. Um and his his wonderful Dalai Lama story. Uh, <laughs> it's it's great. Do you know what he says to me? Hakunga. <laughs> just, just, yeah. Um, it's, it's actually Gunga Galunga, if you're going to quote it. Is it? Yeah. Good, thanks. 
Good. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of scrawled some notes on this. My notes, by the way, for this movie are a, are a lot like this. There is no real through line. They kind of mimic the structure of this film because I just wrote down <laughs> bits that I went, that was good. So feel free to, <laughs> to jump in at, at any point as I uh, as I go down this strange journey. And then, then we sort of, just to back up my argument about the caddy's story not being... That's interesting. There's that kind of weird fight around the gumball machine between uh, Michael O'Keefe and, oh, I've not written down his name. Never mind. Uh, the other guy, the, the good looking uh, other caddy whose main character trait is that he smokes. He smokes. He's called Tony. Tony DeSantio, I think, or something like that. Um, yeah, but all he does is smoke. Mm. Tony D'Annunzio. Uh, uh, D'Annunzio. Thank you. Apparently, you see, this is the problem. If you watch the um, the making of Caddyshack, the 19th hole, it's only like a short half hour documentary. Like a lot of the talking heads on there, you just can't tell if they're making shit up or not. <laughs> so it's very difficult to work out what's true or not. Because he says at one point, um, this was Harold Ramis's first film as a director. And I think he was one of the, I was one of the first people, one of the first actors who he gave a direction to. And his direction was that I see Tony always having a half smoked camel light in his mouth. And I hadn't smoked before this movie. And I started smoking three packs a day afterwards. Now he says it with such a straight face. I'm like, Oh man, I'm making a podcast. and I really need to deal in facts here. Is that true? But I don't ask know. Chris. Just ask Chris. Chris, is Chris? it true? I mean, I've watched that. It sounded true. I, did, it, <laughs> I thought it was a bit of an anecdote, though, as well. But mm. whatevs. <laughs> um, and then we get uh, the final part of, uh, like I keep calling them, the Holy Trinity, Rodney, uh, Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield. Um, Never seen him before uh, when I watched this the first time, like a lot of stuff in this movie. He's an incredible force of nature in Caddyshack, is he not? <laughs> he looked to me, you know, you've said it about someone before. It's either someone we know for real or a character, I can't remember. You're like, it, you're the sort of person would be a nightmare to go out for a drink with. And that's how I feel about him. And you know how I feel about people I can't go for a drink with. Like, it's not ideal. Um, I, I find it, I understand he's funny and he was making me laugh, but it's so much and it's so sketchy. And I read that he was quite nervous and didn't quite get into, like, just the, the like film set etiquette, like, you know, being able to, like, hit your mark and repeat the line and stuff like that. And I think you can tell, and he seems really tetchy, uh, not tetchy, just, just, just a bag of nerves, and it made me feel uncomfortable. But that's, I think that is Rodney Dangerfield. I think that was, that was always his performance style. But you're right. There is a story about how he didn't know how it was going to work on a film set. And coming from a stand-up background, he'd be throwing out all these zingers. And yeah. then he'd start sweating halfway through a scene and look nervous. And people would be like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm dying here. No one's <laughs> laughing at my jokes. And they're like, if they laugh, laugh at your jokes, then we have to do, do the again. whole scene again. So that's that's why. And at that point, I think he relaxed. Well, as, as you said, Alex, Hal Ramis uh, said, no one will ever accuse Rodney of being a great actor, but he was like a force of nature. And it, it, I, I, I wrote down when I was watching, I transcribed some of his speeches and they do make me laugh. It's just joke after joke after joke and sort of 
One in three are really funny. Um, <laughs> they're politically pretty incorrect, especially in this day and age. But um, it, I mean, it launched it launched a full on film career. He then did Back to School pretty soon after this with Robert Downey Jr., which was him in the lead, uh, name above the title, and that was a huge hit. Um, and essentially, he just played this character for the rest of his career. Mm. Yeah, I, I did mean to write down some of his lines. I feel like kind of guilty now that I didn't, but uh, but yeah, they were great. Uh, so uh, at this point. Can we talk about The Gopher? Because <laughs> I should have mentioned it at the start, because the film does open uh, and close with the dancing gopher. And you mentioned this, Chris. That gopher is a work of fucking art. It is the most lovable animatronic character I think <laughs> I've ever seen in a movie. I think it's it's great and the way it moves and it was made by uh, john dykstra who was involved in ilm initially then he fell out with lucas but he still won uh, an academy award for star wars and the work he did on the visual effects on that and i, I we've talked about um john peters uh, on the podcast before haven't we yeah batman right. barbara streisand batman. <laughs> exactly um if you watch the 19th hole uh, documentary, The Making of Caddyshack. He's in there uh, doing a talking head and he is the only one uh, sitting indoors in a very well-lit room wearing massive wraparound shades. It's <laughs> hilarious. And he's got this big black quiff. He looks like a latter-day Elvis. It's great. But obviously, you know, we talked about him with the giant mechanical spider. And there's, obviously there's a lot of stories about how like I'd say 90% of the projects he wanted to make, he wanted to put a giant mechanical spider in it. Now, we've laughed at him for that, but the gopher in this, like this was his idea. At the very end of filming, they basically, I think they had about four and a half hours of footage to turn <laughs> into a movie. And despite having four and a half hours of footage, they did not have a through line for the film because they just sort of go, this is funny, this is funny, have a line, this is funny, this is funny. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it didn't have a through line because they sort of, you know, got rid of the caddy story. And it was him who went, um, we'll, we'll bring the gopher in, we'll make the gopher real. Because at that point, Bill Murray had just been acting to nothing. There was no gopher he was acting to. He was just... Uh, pretending there was a go for there, and John Peters went. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find five hundred thousand dollars, and we're gonna build this gopher. And I, the gopher bits are really well done. That bit when it's in its tunnel and it's running away from the water, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a gopher based Indiana Jones. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and to have to have the facial reactions to what Carl Speckler's saying really uh, puts those jokes over the top. You know, it um, it makes a it makes a real difference. I, I remember also just the way it danced. My, in my brother's chubbier days, when we were little kids, I used to make him do the gopher dance as well, which I feel <laughs> bad about. I really feel bad about. Uh, that now. That is uh, that didn't come up on the Goonies episode with the truffle shuffle, but that is what that is, Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, I might have asked him to do the truffle shuffle as well. I'm sorry, Pete. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I think Pete listens to this show now, and I'm 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 apologise, but you know that's what you get when you've got two boys similar ages. One's going to absolutely bully the other one. Sorry, Pete. <laughs> okay, 
Yeah, I think um, I think that was a really nice moment, really heartfelt. <laughs> uh, I really I really loved that bit just then. That was really nice, Chris. Oh. Uh, moving on. So uh, then <laughs> then we at tw- I wrote down the time at twenty eight minutes in. We do actually have a plot point for Danny, which is winning the caddy tournament. So I was like, brilliant. There is, there's a goal that has been set by this movie. There is, there is something that is going to happen. The plot is working towards something. Uh, there's a caddy scholarship mentioned. I'm like, okay, okay, great. Now, normally I would moan about this, like, ah, it's too late. There's too little of this. What, it, what, where is the film going? Caddyshack has this amazingly rare ability to somehow like coast along on an almost bottomless well of charm that gets it past its very, very visible flaws in terms of having (laughs) any real plot whatsoever. And I feel I I need to say this because of how much I tore into Mars Attacks a few weeks ago for exactly the same reason. But the thing is, Mars Attacks had no likable characters this is jammed full of likable characters, and that's why this works. And also, it's funny. Thoughts? Yeah, you've got good... I think that's the other thing, yeah. Is you've got good jokes as well. I think with Mars Attacks, we weren't really laughing terribly much when we watched that, whereas here, the jokes come thick and fast, and, you know, one in three is a really good joke as well. So it's it's got a really high laugh rate consistently. Oh, I've stumbled upon um, a Rodney Dangerfield uh, line, um, which is actually a politically fine one, so I can do it, which is when he's at the dance at the the club and he goes, geez, it's like the dance of the living dead in here. (laughs) No? All right, fine. (laughs) Screw you. (laughs) (laughs) I never said I could do Rodney Dangerfield, so shut up, man. He, tell, um, he tells Judge Smale's wife that she must have been something before electricity, and then he says, yeah. "Now I know why. Now I know why tigers eat their young." <laughs> last, last time I saw a mouth like that, it had a hook in it. Want to make fourteen dollars the hard way? So they, they come at you thick and fast, you know. He builds and builds. Yeah, the fourteen dollars like that. I was killing myself laughing. That's brilliant. Do you know? What's almost better than his one-liners, though, and genuinely, like, it is incredible, and I've never... I don't think I've ever seen anyone dance as funnily as he dances in this movie, whether it's to Earth, Wind & Fire or Journey, when it's uh, <laughs> any way you want it on the golf course. It's... He makes me, like, happy in a way I don't quite understand watching him dance. Well, also, while he's doing that, he's wearing a plaid jacket, a yellow shirt, a white tie, and purple trousers. Which, uh, weirdly, weirdly, that is somehow acceptable attire on a golf course, but it looks very funny on him. So uh, we've got this far. Uh, we've not mentioned uh, truly one of the highlights of this movie. And I feel bad for not listing him in the Holy Trinity earlier, but uh, Ted Knight is a revelation. And I know this this was his last movie, but he is so good as Judge Smiles. So good. What did you think of him? He's a good villain. Funny. Nice hair. He, he sort of reminds me of the villain in every 80s comedy that I remember as a kid. Like, they all seem to be very much like him. I think yeah. his line readings are off the chart in this film. Like, because 
because the other guys were cooler or madder, it seemed to me when I was a kid, I was more focusing on on the three that you mentioned, Alex. But as I get older, you really see that his it's deranged his performance. Every every word he says, he say he he, he mutters in quite quite a strange way. And um... <laughs> tell me, tell me what then, because I didn't. Give me an example, because I obviously with first time watching it, he didn't make that much of an impression on me. He's got one line about when he's um, sending people, putting people on death row, and he says, "I didn't want to send them to the gas chamber, but I felt I owed it to them." And that's very, very <laughs> funny. But other than that, he just didn't make that much of an impression. I was like, "Yeah, it's funny, it's fine, it's fine," but nothing leapt out. I, I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's because he oh my god mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it <laughs> it's but it's just the way the way his mouth moves as he does that it's like there's, there's so much sort of like like puckering of the lips and then releasing the puckering as he's doing it he's like mm, when you've when you've uh, finished why don't you uh, swing by the the yacht club hmm hmm it's what is that it's such a, it's such an off the off the wall way to read that line which is why he's so good and he he's and so he looks and he, he looks insane when he says well we're waiting uh, when the ball, <laughs> for that final part i mean i've used that before when i've been trying to put friends off when we've been playing golf um but also what it's, it's funny what you say about his hair vicky apparently in that scene near the end in the bar when they're talking about the bet um yeah. Chevy, you got a lot of wind-up merchants on this set, and, and Chevy Chase ruffled his hair, and he and that's the one time he lost his shit because yeah, that, hair, that hair was a work of art, and um, it yeah. was the one thing you shouldn't do. Yeah, he carried a comb around with him all times, and every half hour or so, he'd just run it through his hair to make sure it was oh perfect. God. Is he like my actual dad? Or so? That's what I do. If you ever touch my hair, I will slap your hand for serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to get back to the studio. That's going to be a fun episode. <laughs> um, then we uh, we haven't really uh, okay. Let's 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 get to the the, the date scene, the, the heavily improvised date scene between Alex, Chevy Alex, Chase. Yeah, shall we talk about the date scene after we've had a break? Oh, okay. I was just thinking right now, a break could be a great idea. So well, it's a lovely suggestion, Chris. Let's um. Let's just roll with that. Let's uh, let's just uh, let's improv here. We'll see you after the break. <laughs> Jack, mate. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tappy Hour is back for a brand new season. It's the podcast where we talk to some of the most exciting people in the world, from Ricky Gervais. In some ways, fame makes you a better person. You know, it's like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God's watching me. But I, I know someone with Everyone else is. <laughs> <laughs> to undercover police officers. Can you see the fading scar there, gentlemen? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. That's where I was stabbed in the neck by a drug dealer once. Or we just talk about whatever's making us laugh right now. When you think back to school kid banter, like, it's well funny because of how immature it is. We had this teacher called Mr. McGibbon, and he had this big cushion that he was teaching us how to rugby tackle on. He just ran up to it, rugby tackled it, but landed on top of it, and one of the kids shouted, it's not your wife, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. (laughs) Listen to Jack Mate's Happy Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Jack Mate's Happy Hour is a Stakano production. Oh, okay. Welcome back after that uh, that break that I decided we should have just then, because uh, <laughs> that's the kind of guy I am, the the, the big dog around here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, the uh, the date scene. Um, it's great. Um, Cindy Morgan uh, as Lacey, I think it's really good in this. Yes. Um, uh, I think it's it's an interesting uh, character arc that she has, which is to uh, sleep with a few men uh, and not really get much get what? else. What, what were you going to say? Get any money? What? <laughs> I was not going to say get any money. I, I, I sort of think she should have been given more to do because I think she's really, really funny in this. Yeah, That's she does. She does very. Say. She makes a lot of what she's given. It's quite thin stuff, but she's really mm. engaging. Um. So I, I, I know we gave uh, a lot of credits to John Peters for uh, demanding that the gopher be built. Uh, if they only left it there and not taken it to the, the world of arachnids, uh, that wouldn't be uh, so bad. But apparently he did. Uh, he was the one who insisted on her having the topless scene um, in the film, um, which she eventually agreed to. Uh, but then she said absolutely not to his other suggestion, which was to get a Playboy photographer down to take pictures of her <gasps> topless as a way of helping promote the movie. Oh, um, my God. She, she, from from her mouth, uh, this comes, she was like, no, it's a scene in a movie. It's there for a brief moment. I don't mind that, but I'm not having a magazine uh, with <gasps> myself topless in it just to promote your movie. So uh, she oh, did say no. 
it's so sad because what what you haven't said only because you don't know but when the sentence like she eventually agreed imagine what it what that journey is between mm. fuck off john peters and do not want to do that and then finally your agent's like yes yeah, she'll do it like it's so upsetting the progression like what you've had to put up with or been told will happen if you don't or offered to you if you will Ugh. I also yeah. think it's unfortunate that for sort of starting with pretty much Animal House for 10, 15 years, every teen comedy like this had to have boobs out, had to have that scene boobs, in them, yeah. which makes them really difficult to watch with your parents or with your kids. They're just kind of awkward and embarrassing. And, and, and you know, I think by the time we got into the 90s, that had pretty much stopped. But it's just, mm. and particularly as I first watched this with my parents when I was very young, I just still feel super embarrassed when that scene comes on. <laughs> Yeah, I found that there was a in sort of any movie where boobs just appear uh, out of the blue. Um, I I I think it's it's quite it's quite a difficult moment. I remember myself, and my brother were watching uh, Mad Max Two: uh, The Road Warrior, and there's a bit where a tent uh, gets uh, ripped off as a car drives by, uh, thus revealing some boobs. And um, and I remember we were with our, our parents in the room and there was an awkwardness uh, to that moment <laughs> uh, in a movie. And I think in a movie that uh, you didn't need them. Uh, it was a little bit, a little bit naughty there from, uh, from George Miller, because uh, I, I just wanted to put them there. No, no one in my house was expecting that moment. So uh, <laughs> I, re- I remember, so, yeah. I remember a few months after we first watched this at the video store, I got my parents to rent meatballs, which was the film that Bill Murray made before this. And we got mm-hmm. home, put it on, and five minutes in, my parents switched it off and took it back. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny oh. thing is, I, I haven't watched that. I, I never watched that film until about a month ago. I finally thought, what was all the fuss about? And yet, I can see what happened. There was a scene earlier on where I think they're talking about the girls are all in their dorm talking about whether you can have sex on your period. And it was just a bit too adult for seven-year-old and six-year-old <laughs> me and Pete. But, um, but actually, the rest of the film is really, it's a really, really sweet film. It's really lovely, yeah. and I could have watched it, but yeah, it's just there was something about the films of that time that had to have that bit of raunch. Otherwise, you know, people the, the kids weren't going to go and see them. Was the was the thinking? Yeah, I, I, I see your meatballs, and I raise you a, <laughs> Don't a see my meatballs. <laughs> Showing you my bloody meatballs, mate. <laughs> you said you you said you wanted to do it on Zoom. I can see your meatballs, Chris. You're sounding like John saying... Peters now. Yeah, <laughs> take a photo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sending a photographer around now. Um, uh, there's I I I I raise I raise you uh, the 1984 comedy Up the Creek, um, which my dad rented uh, from our local video shop, uh, which is more than the occasional flash of boobs. It's, it's, it's kind of a softcore sex comedy, but the cover looks like Animal House. It's loads of guys on a raft having a great time with some buxom ladies in their arms, and it's like, this is fine. There's an innocence to this cover. No, 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 no. Uh, I believe the Washington Post called it a moist smut movie. So um, we got about 20 minutes into that before that went off. Um, which made it seem more exciting, I won't lie. It made me want to watch it more when it was turned off. So, so uh, yes, uh, anyway. Um, 
Uh, yeah, this, the date scene with Chevy Chase it is great, just because you can tell uh, it was definitely not written. But he's such a good prop comedian, Chevy Chase, whether he's dropping golf clubs or trying to fill a Perrier bottle up from two half Perrier <laughs> bottles. He, is, he does wonders with the simplest setup. Yeah. I mean, that was his shtick. His, um, his shtick on SNL was falling over. You know, he was a physical comedian and, and, and most of the sketches he was in, he would, he would trip up very naturally. And no, it's a wonder he didn't kill himself because he, he can do it so convincingly. Yeah. But that's what, when I think of him, I think of that. But the way they button that scene when he goes to kiss her and he, it's just a line. There's no goofiness, daftness falling over. And when he says to her, let's pretend we're real human beings, that's one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen in my entire life. If someone said that to me, I would, I think I would marry them. Like, it's so funny. It's, and it's so weird, but it is strangely sexy. Well, he it's was, when he, when he left SNL uh, to launch his film career and he did foul play with Goldie Hawn, which was a big hit just before this, they, they were saying he was going to be the next Cary Grant. That's what they were trying to make happen yeah. for him. Um, I can see it now. I can never see help, it before. What didn't help was when someone put that question to him on a talk show and he said something very... Um, he questioned Cary Grant's sexuality in, in a very unpleasant way, his use of language. Okay. And, and Cary Grant then tried to uh, went to sue him for 10 million. So, um, oh. yeah, it didn't quite come off for him because it, I think in the end, audiences liked him goofy rather than... Mm. Um, than sort of charming so or a charming goof but not the not the sort of sex symbol they wanted him to be falling over more yeah mm. um that's why that's why it's really nice watching him in this because yeah it's he's great he's great in it um uh, so um talking of um saturday night live and obviously uh Bill Murray had come on to Saturday Night Live, I think, just after Chevy Chase left. I think he was almost his replacement. So uh, the one thing they decided they wanted to add to this movie was a scene in which Bill Murray and Chevy Chase were on screen together because they were two of the funniest guys in the country at that point, and and they didn't have that scene written. And I think there were some nerves about it. Yeah, can I talk a bit just briefly about why that was? Um because there's a yeah. great book called Life from New York about the history of Saturday Night Live. And this is maybe the most famous thing that happened behind the scenes on the show was when um, Chevy Chase came back to guest host for the first time after he'd left and, and made it in Hollywood and, and the fist fight that the two of them had. So Chase says that, and, and a lot of people say this, that, that there's a little bit of a bully in, in, in Billy, that Bill Murray is a big, aggressive, strong guy who likes a fight and likes to wind people up. And so while Billy Joel was singing on stage, the two of them um, had this screaming match. Uh, Lorraine Newman says that Murray said to Chase, why don't you fuck your wife once in a while? Um, John Landis, who was also there, remembers him saying something much worse. He says that Murray called Chase a medium talent, which really got in his head. Uh, Murray, Murray says, I got in a fight with Chevy the night he came back to host. Uh, that was because I was the new guy and it was sort of like my job. And then Chase says um, of it, I'm sure Billy wanted to take me down. So we got kind of into a fist fight and it just happened before I went on air. In a sense, John Belushi caused the fight, but we both ended up hitting John by mistake. So <laughs> um, going into this, there was this tension uh, between the pair of them. And that's why they did not have that scene together. Although they did in the end, obviously. And by all accounts, yeah. everyone was very civil. Uh, it's a good scene about uh, having a grass that you can both play golf on and then smoke. Um, <laughs> 
there was another scene um, that they had together that uh, never made it in. And it's weird because um, when Chevy Chase talks about the other scene, he actually uses uh, the idea of Bill Murray being a bit of a bully because Bill drove up to him in this big sort of tractor with blades all around it. And the scene ended with Chevy Chase having to jump onto the side of this tractor. And Chevy said to Bill, look, um, I've got these spikes on my shoes, so I'm, I'm not really able to get any purchase on the side of this tractor. There's sort of big blades all around it, so please don't make any sharp movements. And when you watch the scene, the first thing Bill Murray does after Chevy Chase gets on it is a sharp right, as sharp as he can. And Chevy Chase said he had to leap about 15 feet to avoid falling into the blades. <laughs> so, yeah. Just right. having a laugh, eh? Just having hey. a laugh. <laughs> boys, boys on a film set with lots of cocaine around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and then we sort of close in on the final act, which I really love, uh, which is the, the the big bet between Judge Smales and uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Um, and it's great. It's a, it's a great way to end. It feels very coherent from something that's kind of ambled along under its own steam uh, for so long. The ending is actually like, oh, this is, this is really good. This is like a, a proper climax to the movie. And I do also think that if you have sort of played fast and loose with structure until the very end of your film, the answer to how to make the audience leave the cinema grinning (laughs) is to blow the fuck out of everything to the 1812 overture. So take it from me, as a first-time viewer, I was just like, they've actually blown up a golf course, which is like, I can't believe it. Not, Not shitty 80s effects. They've just gone... Yeah, that'll do. But what a brilliant way to be like, this'll work, this'll be fine, everyone stand back. I just blew it up. I can't get over it. Apparently a pilot flying over uh, radioed in to say that a plane had crashed. He reported a plane crash because (laughs) the ball of fire was so big. Uh, And the people who own the golf course, they built a fake green to blow up. Obviously, they didn't blow up the actual golf course, but they were told that they weren't even allowed to do that. So I can't remember which one of the producers took the owners of the golf course out to lunch because it was the last (gasps) day just to to say thanks. And while they were all out at lunch, they blew up the golf course. Is that true? Chris, is that true? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fact um, check fact check i want to go back one did you did you say they crashed a plane crashed alex no i i said that um, a pilot who was flying over at the time that the explosions were set off because they were near an airport in florida yeah. at the golf yeah. course he'd seen the explosion and he'd reported a plane having crashed because oh, that's god. what he thought had happened oh god that's awful yeah one of the murray another murray brother john murray his job was to be the plane spotter because they were so near the airport that they had to stop filming for when the planes went over every one of those murray's got a gig on this film <laughs> Um, so yeah, beyond that, um, I don't really have too much more on uh, the movie. Um, that's that. That's my journey uh, through um, Caddyshack. I, I, I hope I've covered everything. Obviously, there was a Caddyshack two, um, which uh, only Chevy Chase reprised his role in it, and he has said since he regrets doing that. Uh, it has the grand total. I haven't seen it of four percent 
on Rotten Tomatoes, and uh, it's described as being handicapped by a family-friendly PG rating. And they just parachuted in a lot of good actors uh, who and gave them uh, nothing to do. Well, you've got you've got you've got Dan Aykroyd doing a a, a Bill Murray impression, playing the Carl Speckler. Ooh, okay. And you've got Jackie Mason doing a Rodney Dangerfield impression in in the same character. It's it's horrendous. I've I saw it the once in when it came out, and it is it is bad news. And um, uh, the only thing that I. I... I can't quite uh, wrap my head round. Um, although it is, uh, it's always nice uh, to uh, to mention a friend of the show, Frank Welker. Uh, <laughs> in the sequel, the Gopher was able to speak, and it was voiced by Frank Welker. Wow! <laughs> yeah, I, I, on, on, on this go round, I, I discovered where the Gopher noises came from in this film, which I didn't know previously. Do you, did you? It's it's Frank Welker. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's, it's a, not. Is it a dolphin? Is it a dolphin, Chris? It's, it's is it li- Tim Curry? It's literally Flipper. <laughs> they, they took the audio from Flipper and used it for the Gopher. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Bizarre. Um, so here's the weird thing. This is, I, I couldn't find too much on this, uh, which always surprises me. But apparently, Bill Murray sued the producers of Caddyshack Two for using the Gopher because he said that. He was so heavily involved in the creation of the Gopher in that first film, I, and I'm guessing he must mean he started talking about there being a Gopher, and then later on the animatronic Gopher was added. But because the genesis of having a Gopher there was his idea, he sued them and they settled out of court for an undisclosed sum because they used the Gopher. I wonder if is that not also something to do with the Honker as well? Because um, Murray had been doing this character for years since he was a teenager called the Honker, which is basically Carl with the voice and the mouth sort of loping to one side. And you can see him using that character in SNL. I'll post I'll post um, the clip that I found on, on our Twitter. It's a, a sketch called Theodoric of York, um, him and Steve Martin um, as a medieval barber who doesn't know what he's doing and tortures Murray from 78. But literally that's... Um, that character is Carl Speckler. And then Dan Aykroyd was doing a very similar thing. So I wonder if that played into what he was suing for, that he's just sort of stolen my voice and my character. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it could be. Hey, um, I, a quick question. Would you like to do the bits, which I'm very sure. excited about this week? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Who wants to start? Should it be myself, Christopher, Victoria or Oscar nominee Michael O'Keefe? <laughs> Your, your choice, Alex. <laughs> um, uh, let's uh, let's do a uh, best scene first. Then um, uh, uh, let's uh, let's go with let's go with Michael. Let Michael open uh, open uh, this section. Okay. Uh, he he wouldn't be hugely drawn on his favourite scene, but I did get him talking about a scene he loved watching being shot. So um, again, apologies for the sound quality on this one but um here is michael o'keefe i watched bill do two of the major things that he did i watched him do the dalai lama speech and i watched him do the uh thing where they where he hit the the heads off of whatever plants those were when he was winning the masters as carl speckler and and, you know and i was like damn you know because that was some impressive stuff and he wrote all that on the fly right there yeah 
Uh, I, and I feel like I, <laughs> uh, Michael O'Keefe is picking up the slack that I uh, have so evidently created in this episode by failing to mention the most iconic scene <laughs> in Caddyshack. <laughs> so uh, a big, a big thank you, Michael. Uh, it, it's my first day. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, what, what an incredible scene uh, that is. And I think it's, it's now on like the AFI list of the most uh, memorable quotes in cinema history, that whole thing that he came up with from scratch. Harold Ramis gave him a note which was behave like a child and smack their heads off roses. <laughs> and he took it from there and created that whole Cinderella speech. Yeah, no, it, it was the direction was to pretend you're a commentator. And 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 right. as we as we all do when we're playing golf and we get inside our own heads and, you know, if I get this part in, I've, let's pretend I've won the Masters. Um, and so, yeah, that was his direction, and he just took it from there. Okay, so thank you, Michael. That's a good one. And um, Chris, is Michael filling in for you, or do you have your own as well? I've got my own this week, I decided. Um, oh, oh, okay. Good. So I'm going from Cinderella Man, uh, segueing into the monsoon scene with the with the bishop. Um, <laughs> play. So he Henry Wilcoxon played him, who was a who was a, a, a silent movie star. He, he goes back that far, and and it, you know he goes to play golf in the rain, and it comes down, and then he gets struck by lightning when he's just about to make the perfect round of his life. Uh, Bill Murray says that the the rain machine they use created five times the amount of rainfall as normal, so it would show up on camera. And he said, we were both like drowned rats, but we enjoyed it so much that we kept doing it until we became delirious ourselves. And that's why you've got that slightly insane performance from the two of them. But what I, <laughs> uh, this is the first time I've, I've actually... Um, looked into this scene because I've always thought, oh, that music sounds like the music from the Ten Commandments. And it actually is the music from the T- Ten Commandments. And I guess that's an in-joke because that actor, Henry Wilcoxon, was in the Ten Commandments playing Pentor, <laughs> one of the main characters. So that's a super, <laughs> super in-joke. Um, but that music works perfectly. And it's just, it's a good scene. And then it gets a, it gets a button later in the film when he's at the bar drunk and he says, there is no God. <laughs> yeah that's good all right solid stuff victoria best scene uh the cinderella story um he's got to be pleased with that <laughs> I just think it's really... <laughs> my favorite like favorite is well favorite actual like formal writing but also like favorite improv is when someone perfectly embodies a completely different character or profession or whatever so it's not even necessarily a really great joke like in back and forth but if you can just slip into something else so seamlessly and really nail it that that's my i just find that so exhilarated yeah um all right my best scene is i mentioned it already because you know i'm like i can't help myself Uh, it's the ending uh, I think for such a, a loose and at times hit and miss comedy, you want to leave the audience on a high. And the way to do that is to blow everything up and set it to Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. It's <laughs> going to put a smile on your face. End of story. So uh, that is my favorite scene. Let's move on to most valuable whatever. Uh, Michael, would you like to go first? If I get gratification from watching the movie, it's when I watch the movie, I think, you know what? I have a pretty decent golf swing. I actually, like, I just made a good home. That was a good golf shot. So I was like, that's, you know, that, and that's there forever. Yeah, he famously had the best shot uh, of all of them on the course because he played golf, which um, no, will help. Really. Uh, he apparently. didn't really play golf. He'd been a caddy, but he had to get some super last minute intense training. 
And I always remember that as well, watching it. My dad would always say, wow, what a swing that guy's got. What a swing. And he, yeah, he's the only one that pulled it off. But he, he's only started playing golf after this movie. There's, um, there's a weird interview on YouTube. Um, it's, I, I found it and it's sort of crazy because it's, imagine this foursome lined up. So you've got Ted Knight sitting next to Bill Murray, sitting next to Rodney Dangerfield, sitting next to Chevy Chase being interviewed in 1980 uh, at Dangerfield's, Rodney Dangerfield's Comedy Club, which I believe is still there. And uh, they're being interviewed by basically Mrs. Merton, if Mrs. Merton wasn't a parody. <laughs> and it's so awful. Uh, it's like a car crash interview. It does get a bit better, but uh, the woman in question opens by basically slagging off Chevy Chase's golf swing in a kind of like, I'm being funny, but you can't play golf. And rather than do anything with it, he just goes, well, I'm not a golfer. So, I mean, that was well, uh, that was the best I could do with that training. So uh, it's I, I, on YouTube. Yeah, I've seen that. I haven't seen that for years, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's very uncomfortable. And um, uh, reading Nick, uh, Nick Dissemlian's uh, great book, Wild and Crazy Guys, about this period, he talks about the publicity tour for this film, what a disaster it was. They had a press conference where Rodney Dangerfield was stoned. There was one where Doug Kenny passed out. There was one where Murray was really hostile. <laughs> one where a, uh, Chase told a reporter to go fuck him himself um <laughs> uh, and and i mean the sad thing is that doug kenny this really hit him hard um the fact that it it, it was critically it was mauled it wasn't a hit at the box office compared to animal house and he pretty much basically committed suicide about a month after this film came out this really was one of the things that completely broke him and he was found at the bottom of a cliff in hawaii and you know no one knows if he fell or, or if he jumped but he he'd had his battles with drugs and depression and so yeah, it's such a it's such a shame that he didn't get to see what this film went on to become and the audience it found and the love it found. Yeah, because it, it, as I said right at the top of the show, this is uh, this is a movie that seemingly as every year passes, even now it gets more and more love. Like it, its fan base is, it grows and and people just discover it. It's um, it's it's a, it's great. I enjoyed it a lot more this time. <coughs> Excuse me than watching it as um, as a kid, possibly because a lot of it went over my head as a kid and there were boobs in it, which made it uncomfortable. So, um, Victoria, your MVW. Um, Chevy Chase um, is just, it was a revelation. Um, also for the line when the if they're they're about to like not win the bet and he just comes over and he's been quite zen and he whispers to Danny something that he says like it's no big deal if you miss we lose and then That's I wanted the... to give a special mention to is what's Danny's girlfriend called Maggie, Maggie. <laughs> yeah the line that she gets where she's like I'm late and he says late for what she says I'm late for not being pregnant which is fucking brilliant and I will tell you next time I'm pregnant <laughs> like that <laughs> um, I just wanted yeah I forgot to mention that line I thought that was amazing that's kind of going to make us nervous every time you say I'm late in the future because we're going to be waiting for the, the second half of, of of that joke. It's just so good. It's just the sort of thing that when people tell someone they're pregnant, it's always a little bit like, eh, eh, eh. but it's such a, it's good to see that forensic level of funniness applied to a line that comes from a female character where people don't sometimes don't try as hard. I thought it was really good. Um, all right. Did we do your MVW, Chris? No, I think we got sidetracked with uh, Mr. Michael O'Keefe's. 
Yeah, um, like what what you were saying, Alex, about you liked it more when you're older than when you were younger. I because I've seen this so much at all different places in my life. I've sort of liked a different character at different times. Like when I first watched it, Chevy Chase was my favourite because, like you said, he was like a cartoon character, and he's the one I probably knew the best. And then it was Rodney Dangerfield because he's such a show off in this film, and he's got so many one liners. And then it became Bill Murray just because I love Bill Murray and. <laughs> That's such an off-the-wall performance. But it really is Ted Knight now, as I said. And, you know, uh, Vicky was asking why. And um, I'm trying to think. I think if you focus on him, if you're what I pay, I watch him a lot now in the scenes. And he, it's such a deranged performance that he delivers, every line delivery, that because everyone else is acting so mad, it goes by a bit unnoticed. But actually, when you're focusing on him, it's just so fun. Every one of his lines makes me laugh now. And it's through the delivery. It's not even the words. It's just the way he's doing them. So um, <laughs> uh, he's such a good... And as you said, he's such a good villain. Um, it would have been nice to see him team up with Shooter from Happy Gilmore. I think they would get on with each other, those two characters. <laughs> yep. Um, for all the reasons... Chris, you just said uh, Ted Knight as Judge Smiles oh, is lovely. my MVW as well. All right, the big one then. Uh, let's leave Michaels to last because I'd be interested to know what he'd change about his own movie. Let's start with you, Victoria. What would you change about Caddyshack? Uh, I wish that I'd have known going into this that a caddy-based scholarship was a real thing and not a fucking made-up thing because as if you can get to college for carrying someone's golf clubs around. But I didn't realise... I know that the... American college system is not something within my grasp to understand, <laughs> but I just assumed that was made up because that's so stupid. Um, and now that I know it's real, <laughs> I've taken it all that bit more seriously. <sighs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll do mine next. Um, You know, I started writing this bit and I was like, it needs more of a structure. You know, as far as the story goes, it needs more of an emotional through line that it isn't just will the gopher live. Um, (laughs) However, I think that part of the charm of Caddyshack is like the fact that it is this sprawling, aimless collection of moments. So I don't want to add a story in and lose that. I do think maybe some of the improvised moments could have been better. Like you just wonder whether no one is going, Bill, Chevy, that was great. Shall we just do one more to get it ever so slightly tighter? But again, it sort of works because it feels like a lot of people having had a really great time and made this movie that is fueled, not by cocaine, but just high spirits and like fun. And it has that quality that so few films like have where there's an energy to it that you just come away, like kind of buzzed from watching it. So I actually don't really have a big change this week. So there you go, Chris. Wow. Uh, mine is, I would, I would, I would take out the pregnancy subplot because it's, it's now it's completely half-assed, you know, you've got, there was obviously a lot, um, left on the cutting room floor between Danny and Maggie. That was a whole subplot in the movie, their romance, their breakup, they're getting back together again, her, her potentially being pregnant, her not being pregnant. But now it just comes out of nowhere. This, these two scenes where she thinks she's pregnant and then she isn't pregnant and she's, does one of your favorite things alex she dances round in the in the rain in a in a in a mm, nighty i hated that bit yeah <laughs> yeah <I hate> that. <laughs> so yeah. just if you're gonna remove all the other stuff with the two of them just remove this because it's just it doesn't have any place in the film they've ended up with um 
and also yeah take out the boobs I, it still makes me embarrassed it's i'm scarred from 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 childhood because of that so <laughs> <laughs> all right so finally mr michael o'keefe what would he change about caddyshack michael uh, firstly, I'd like to apologise to Michael if he is listening to this, um, that none of us picked him as our favourite character or performance in the film. <laughs> we could have done that and we chose not to, but we all very much like what you <laughs> did, Michael. <laughs> um, but um, this is what he would uh, change. And um, the Doug he's referring to here is is Doug Kenny, who we mentioned earlier, the, the one of the co-writers. First of all, I wouldn't do any drugs. Uh, um, you know, I, w- I think some of Doug's writing actually could have really helped the movie and might have brought that, that level of, um, you know, um, heart and, and, and hope, um, that he was trying to write his way into himself, you know, um, and, and he wanted to articulate his own journey, you know, because his journey into the arts was not unlike mine. It's not like he had a supportive family of, you know, he didn't grow up in New York City with a, you know, a mother who was at ABT and a, you know, a dad who was a painter, you know, or was a curator at MoMA. You know, I mean, his dad was a tennis professional and he grew up in a suburb of Ohio. So I think he was trying to articulate something about his own sensitivities um, and his own insights into the world. And I think um if they had the film had a bit more of that seriousness to it, it probably would have been more meaningful for him. Okay. Okay, that's a hell of an answer there from Michael mm. O'Keefe. Wow. Yeah. Um, maybe it would. Maybe for all the reasons that I just outlined why I love it, like because it is sort of kind of aimless, like a, a sort of golf fever dream, it might have benefited <laughs> from a little more you- heart. Do you know my theory there, Alex? I think that it would have put, it would have made it a better film because it does seem like he had something to say. Uh, it was a coming of age story, but I don't know if we'd be talking about it today if it, if it had been that film. I think you would have got a very good coming of age film, whereas what we've ended up with is something really weird and unique and unusual. And for whatever reason, that weird chemistry that went into this has made it stand the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is Caddyshack then. Oh, is that quizzing I can hear? It will be because it's time for the quiz, Chris. Oakley dokely. This is a sports movie quiz. So I've picked some not very well-known sports movies. I'm going to give you the title. Perfect. Yeah, I've, I've picked them so that they're not too obvious, Vicky. Um, this isn't trying to help you, I think, here. Um, okay. Um, and you've got to tell me the sport. So I'm going to give you the title. And if no one's getting it, I'll give you the cast and a bit of a clue. But these are uh, okay. a, a less well-known movie. So we're starting. I'm doing them in chronological order. So the first okay. movie from uh, is called Matilda. So what is that sport? Is that film about? It's Curling. From, nope. It's from 1978. Boxing. Boxing. Correct. <laughs> Alex got it first. Um, yes! It's about a boxing kangaroo called Matilda, and it stars Robert Mitchum oh. and Elliot Gould. Weirdly, yeah, well, <laughs> probably I knew that. Uh, the second one is from 1985, and it is called Vision Quest. Archery. 
No. Um, uh, it, it, it stars Matthew Modine. And here's a clue that might help you, Vicky, if you know this one. Mm-hmm. Um, the song Crazy For You by Madonna was for this <gasps> film. And so if you can oh. remember that video, the film's actually in the yeah. music video for Crazy For You. What is the sport? I can sing you the song. That Modine's oh. playing. Is it? He is. No. Rollerball. <laughs> no. All right. It is wrestling that one. Right. Oh, this, oh. Is not that. <laughs> this is a British <laughs> film from 87 now. Uh, Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Snooker. Correct, Vicky. Yes. <laughs> the clue was in the question there. And that stars Phil Daniels of Park Life fame. And it's bloody awful. All right. 1998, we've got the movie Up and Under. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, curling. Um, no, no, rugby. Oh, Vicky. <laughs> Alex is correct. That stars Neil Morrissey, Griff Reese jones and Samantha Janis. <laughs> All right. Uh, halfway through. I remember, I remember <laughs> seeing the poster for that. And it was sort of, I think it was... It was at that time when they were doing uh, piggybacking a lot of full Monty style yeah, comedies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, right, the next one's from 2000 and it's simply called MVP. That stands for, oh, in this context, it stands for Most mate, Valuable... Most Valuable Primate. Yep. And what is the sport that this monkey's playing, Alex? <laughs> oh, oh, God. I don't know. Tennis? <laughs> no. Vicky, tennis. Vicky, do you want to guess? Squash. Uh, Happy Gilmore's your clue. Golf. <laughs> Golf. <laughs> Not that one. Oh, hockey. Yes. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I feel I feel like you might know this one now. We're getting into more recent stuff. From 2003, Blackball. Oh, uh, that's snooker. No. Nope. No, that's bowls. Pool. Oh, I'm giving that Vicky. I'm giving that Vicky. Yeah. Uh, that was Vince Vaughn, Johnny Vegas, James Cromwell and Paul Kay, which is a very strange cast. Uh, two left. From 2005, kicking and screaming. Um, oh, football. football. Shocker. Shocker. Starring yep. Will Ferrell. <sighs> and the last one is Balls of Fury. Um, thingy. Fuck. Basketball. <laughs> no. No, dodgeball. No, Christopher Walken no. stars in it. No. Dodgeball is what? Yeah, it's a comedy with Christopher Walken. Where you throw a ball at someone? That's well, dodgeball. Really it's, not, it's not that though. <laughs> Balls uh, of Fury. It's Will Ferrell in it. No, Christopher. Well, that's Blades uh, no, of Glory. Boris Johnson called it whiff waff. Did he? Uh, <laughs> His penis. Ping pong uh, by another name. <laughs> Table, Table tennis. tennis. Yeah, well done, Vicky. Uh, and that is that was a close one. Four three to Alex. Well played, Alex. <laughs> sporting, sporting chants for victory. That's what I'm man, doing. Man, man. I'm, ch- I am chanting because I have done sport good. Right. Um, all that says done uh, for this episode. The only thing that is left to do is turn to you, Victoria, for an early doors clue on what next week's movies might be. Ooh, hello, Clash Potters. This is unusual. It's just me now. This is a late re-record on this week's episode. Victoria and Chris have left. It's just yours truly here with news. Victoria has changed 
at the 11th hour what next week's films will be. So I am re-recording her clue for those movies because she is too busy. So the clue that Victoria has given me for her choices next week is The Life Aquatic. That's it. The Life Aquatic. That's Victoria's clue for next week's movies. Obviously, before then, we'll be back on Thursday to talk all things Happy Gilmore. In the meantime, please do subscribe to the show and give us a rating and even a review if you've got time. They are very much appreciated. Speak to you Thursday, guys. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at the